Warning, viewer discretion is advised. This episode is recommended for mature audiences only. It contains adult language and themes. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Rachel Hoff, policy director of the Ronald Reagan Institute, speaks with Evgenia Karamursa, advocacy coordinator for the Free Russia Foundation, about her husband Vladimir's journey from documentary filmmaker to Russian dissident to political prisoner. Evgenia recounts her incredible story of perseverance, activism, and her continued fight for freedom on behalf of her husband and fellow Russians. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff. I serve as the policy director here at the Reagan Institute, and part of my role is to lead our Center for Freedom and Democracy. And so I join the podcast periodically to speak with guests whose work is relevant to that space. And my guest today, Evgenia Karamurza, is certainly um, fits the bill. Evgenia, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so very much for having me. It's a privilege. Evgenia, you're you're last name, your surname may be familiar to some of our listeners. Uh, you're, of course, the wife of uh, Russian democracy activist, documentary filmmaker, and now tragically a political prisoner, Vladimir Karamurza. Uh, longtime listeners of our show may be familiar with Vlad- Vladimir uh, when we hosted him on the podcast in February of 2021, so almost exactly two years ago. Um, and you've become kind of bit of an unlikely democracy human rights activist yourself now having stepped into the role of political dissident after Vladimir's arrest in in Russia. Um, You serve as the advocacy coordinator for the Free Russia Foundation and I want to talk more about your own role and your work a little bit later in the show. But to start, I wanted to talk about the event uh, that that we hosted where where you were featured here at the Reagan Institute just about a month ago, we uh, hosted a screening of Vladimir's latest documentary called My Duty to Not Stay Silent, um, which is the remarkable story of a Russian Orthodox priest, uh, Father Edelstein, who, who um, continues to fight for, for freedom in Russia, but also was a freedom of religion activist during President Reagan's time in the Soviet Union. Um, our listeners can, can check out that event on the Reagan Foundation YouTube page and watch Vladimir's documentary about Father Edelstein there as well. But Evgenia, to start, I wondered if you might speak with us a little bit about the inspiration that that both you and Vladimir have drawn from figures like Father Edelstein and and um, Boris Nemtsov, a, a um, democracy activist and political leader in the opposition in in Russia's modern history. Tell us some about these figures and and how Vladimir has had and you have been inspired by them? Uh, Well, I took my inspiration from Vladimir. So that's an easy answer. Um, My husband, though, is um, has had many amazing influences in his life. And I'm sure that these people have contributed to him becoming the man he is today. And uh, one of such influences is his own father. Vladimir Karamurza Sr., who was one of the first independent TV journalists in the post-Soviet Russia. He worked for all three major independent TV channels, closed one after another by Vladimir Putin when he came to power. Uh, All of these channels were closed uh, by uh, 2003. And uh, he was uh, one of the journalists working for the the very well-known NTV. 
station in Russia. Um, another such influence is, of course, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, Vladimir has always considered Boris his teacher, and uh, he then became his friend and the godfather of our um, younger daughter. So um, the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in 2015, basically in front of the Kremlin, has hit Vladimir very hard. And I know that this is a personal tragedy for him and for our entire family. And I know that um, you, you just mentioned uh, Vladimir's documentary about Father Georg Edelstein. Well, after the assassination of Boris Nemtsov, Vladimir made a documentary about him. It's called Nemtsov, and it's also available on YouTube. Um, and I think that this was a way for Vladimir to spend some more time with his with his good friend um, and to show to the world that even though the Putin regime can physically eliminate a person, it cannot kill his memory. It cannot kill uh, his or her fight. It's just it continues and it's carried on by other people. Um, and of course, Vladimir has always been influenced by and inspired by Soviet dissidents, whom uh, he knew and still knows uh, personally, many of them. And uh, that was his uh, first documentary, and it's called uh, They Chose Freedom. It's the story of Soviet dissidents, including the uh, seven who participated in the uh, um, in the protest uh, on the um, uh, Red Square in 1968 against the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. This is an amazing documentary where, where you can see these amazing faces. Many of those uh, faces have already, many of those people have already, um, are already gone, unfortunately. Uh, but you can see Yelena Bonner and Pavel Litvinov, and you can see uh, Viktor Feinberg and Natalia Garbanevska and Vladimir Bukovsky and uh, Alexander Podrobinik and others. This is, uh, I very much recommend this documentary to all of those who are interested in the, um, in the, in the fight for freedom during Soviet times. And uh, uh, well, my husband has had many interesting influences in his life and he grew up surrounded by these people but he has become a force of his own um a force to be reckoned with and i am i am so lucky to share my life with uh, someone whom i deeply respect and admire his work remains remains so important and and um and your work um, to carry on uh, that work while he while he can't himself as well, and um, it's been it, it's one of my great honors of my career was was um, getting to know Boris Nemtsov and and Vladimir when when they would come to to Washington to um, to visit policymakers here and advocate for democracy in Russia probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, and it's been inspiring to watch um, Vladimir's continued advocacy in the af aftermath of, of Nemtsov's assassination. You talk about Father, Father Edelstein and the Soviet dissidents and how, how Vladimir's featured each of those um, figures in the documentaries that he's made so far, which um, 
which are really wonderful films and just uh, inspiring to watch. Um, talk a bit about about Vladimir's own emergence. You know, he was always sort of Boris Nemtsov's kind of um, right hand guy, and and now um, after Nemtsov's assassination, really sort of came into his own as an activist, as you mentioned as well. Um, Vladimir has not once, but but twice been been poisoned by the Russian regime, um, and yet despite despite that, and despite the risks that that he was fully aware of to his own own safety, he continued to return to Russia. You wrote recently in the Washington Post. You have a great quote, which I'll I'll just read for our listeners. Um, the reason the reason he continued to return to Russia. The reason in each case was simple. He believes that as a Russian politician, he needs to be where people are fighting this regime. He believes that he must assume the same risks and face the same challenges confronted by Russians at home. He believes in his country and his people. He's a patriot, one who believes that the Russian people deserve to be free and that their patriotism should not be ceded to the Neanderthal nationalists and their thugs. So powerfully written and, and, and um, you know, inspiring words of your own. Um, but could you tell us a little bit of the backstory? You know, what were the conversations like when, when he would return to, to, to Russia and sort of make those decisions about his own travel, even after uh, his own poisoning by the Kremlin? Uh, well, we haven't had those conversations for years, I'm afraid to say, because everything was clear. Um, I know what Vladimir's fighting for. I know, I know what his fight is about. So, uh, even though, of course, I am terrified and have been for years, I cannot tell him to just drop it all. I cannot tell him to abandon his fight because I know that he would not be able to look at himself in the mirror. And I know that he is the, the man I married all these years ago. He hasn't changed. Had he decided to drop a law, I would realize that this is someone different already. This is not Vladimir. Um, and I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, we are on the Reaganism podcast. And uh, I can think of uh, one quote of uh, Ronald Reagan that I truly like. And uh, um, he said, there are no easy answers, but there are simple answers. We have to have the courage to do um, what we know is morally right. This is what Vladimir has been doing for years. Um, and uh, well, you you mentioned Boris Nemtsov and him coming with Vladimir to the uh, uh, to DC uh, to meet with all those um, policymakers, decision makers. Um, Vladimir. Uh, has been involved in the Magnitsky campaign for many years, since 2010. And uh, I think that what you're remembering uh, were those visits in the uh, uh, context of this campaign for the introduction of the Magnitsky legislation in the United States. That legislation around, allows um, to bring to responsibility, to accountability, human rights violators by uh, freezing their assets stored in Western banks, Western financial systems, and by banning them from entering those democratic countries to enjoy the privileges that these uh, countries uh, provide to their citizens. Uh, so that's, you know, I just, um, 
this morning I talked to Vladimir's lawyer and there are uh, developments in Vladimir's case. Um, nothing surprising, but just this is um, this is yet another slight, you know. Uh, gosh, so um, in Vladimir's case, there are three names. One is Dmitry Komnov. Uh, he used to be the head of the Buturka prison, where Sergei Magnitsky was held. Uh, he was the one who ordered torture against Sergei and then denied him medical care, as a result of which Sergei died in 2009 in Moscow. Uh, this Dmitry Komnov ended up one of the first on the Magnitsky list. Several months ago, he became head of Moscow's fifth pretrial detention center where Vladimir has been held. Another name in Vladimir's case is Bastrykin, whom I'm sure many people know. He's the head of the Russian Investigative Committee. And even though, according to Vladimir's lawyers, the Investigative Committee should not oversee cases uh, such as Vladimir's criminal cases, high treason and all of that, for some reason, the Russian Investigative Committee is very much involved in Vladimir's case. The head uh, of the Russian investigative uh, committee, Bastrykin, ended up on the Magnitsky list, specifically on Boris Nemtsov's and Vladimir's personal initiative. And uh, so new development is that um, on March the 6th, um, there's going to be a pretrial in Vladimir's case, and then uh, a week after that, the actual trial. Uh, and Vladimir will be tried, will be judged uh, by a man uh, who is Podoprigorov, uh, Sergei Podoprigorov. He is a judge of the, uh, uh, used to be a judge of the Tverskoy court in Moscow in 2009. He was the one who sent, unlawfully sent, Sergei Magnitsky to pretrial detention, ordered his arrest. And uh, uh, he will be, uh, again, he's one of the, uh, on the Magnitsky list, um, very much thanks to Vladimir's efforts. And he will be the one judging my husband for high treason. So I would love to believe in coincidences, but I don't, uh, because I do not believe that coincidences um, in Vladimir's case are, um, you know, facts are stubborn things. Right. So he is being held and will be judged by two people who ended up on the Magnitsky list thanks to his efforts. And the entire case is being overseen by the Russian Investigative Committee, the head of which, Bastrykin, is also on the Magnitsky list and under sanctions thanks to Vladimir's um, stubborn work. Well, Vladimir's work on the Magnitsky Act here in the United States and around the world was was so important to him and and so important to um, to holding perpetrators of of these human rights violations to account. Um, you described for our listeners early earlier the the premise of the Magnitsky Act. Just to connect the dots a little bit, you know, we our listeners probably hear a lot about sanctioning countries, right? Sanctions against Russia, sanctions against Iran, et cetera. But the one of the um, new and very powerful things about the Magnitsky legislation in many countries is that it holds individuals to account. So individuals who are involved in Sergei Magnitsky's 
death in Boris Nemtsov's assassination um, to, to allow them to or force them to face personal consequences for the decisions that they make in terms of their own finances, their own travel, as you mentioned. And so that work is very powerful, but um, I, I appreciate you sharing the updates about Vladimir's case. It's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no, almost no situation where he would get a free and f- or fair trial in, in Russia today, but knowing those, those personal connections to his own work, um, of course, I and, and our audience will be, will be following the updates, but um, the, this episode may air right around the time of the, that pre-trial or, or the trial, so we'll, we'll certainly look for updates and post them in the show notes for, for our listeners um, to keep updated with his case as he goes through, and our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with you um, and your family as he goes through that, that process as well. One thing, Evgenia, that that always struck me in my interactions with Vladimir and and even even with Boris Nemtsov as a, a, a major politician of his time, 10, 15 years ago, was that they were always always quick to say, um, no, it's not it's not about me, it's not about us. We're we're here representing, you know, and advocating, but um, but there are so many people across Russia who face um oppression, who face persecution, in fact, who face imprisonment. Vladimir's case is, is one of many um, in Russia and around the world. Um, in particular, with, with the, the situation with political prisoners in Russia, could you um, speak with us about sort of the scope of the situation in Russia? How many political prisoners are there in Russia today? What does it mean to be a political prisoner? What types of activities might you be engaging in? You mentioned Vladimir's been been accused and charged with with high treason, but at a practical level, what what might might somebody, a Russian citizen, be doing that would land them as a political prisoner prisoner in Vladimir Putin's Russia? Well, Vladimir's case uh, is very illustrative of everything that's going on in Russia, of uh, every uh, um, every way of repression that the regime is using against uh, uh, protesters in the, in the Russian Federation. So Vladimir's, uh, Vladimir now has three criminal cases against him. The first one is for spreading so-called fake news about the use of Russian armed forces in Ukraine. And that is a new legislation that was adopted uh, in early March, only nine days after the full-scale invasion had broken out. And uh, um, under this legislation, a person can go to prison for up to 15 years for speaking out against the war, for spreading information about what is uh, going on in Ukraine, for talking about war crimes committed by the Russian army in Ukraine, for talking about the act of aggression against Ukraine, for anything and even remotely that even remotely um, seems as an act of protest. For example, many people um, have been detained across the country for uh, protesting with a copy of uh, War and Peace in Hands, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace in Hands, or for protesting with a black sheet of paper. Uh, Several people during the first, that happened during the first months after the full-scale invasion had broken out. Several people were arrested in Moscow for protesting, as the official police report said, with invisible anti-government signs. So they were just standing in the street holding their hands like that. And the police 
decided that they were holding that they just they, they could see and read those anti-government signs in their hands um i uh just this morning i woke up to a, an absolutely terrifying piece of news about uh, a family in russia uh a girl got um detained for um for drawing an anti-war picture at school uh, the police came to her home, took her, removed her, and sent her to an orphanage while her father was uh, beaten up uh, and taken to a pretrial detention center where he's now facing uh, criminal charges. And uh, as he was the uh, uh, the only one raising, he was raising his daughter alone, so he will end up in prison and she will end up in an orphanage. Um, those things are happening in Russia on a regular basis. Over 20,000 people have been detained across the country since last February for protesting against the war and for protesting against the regime. Uh, there have been almost uh, 6,000 administrative cases initiated against uh, people for um, discrediting, as the Russian authorities call it, the Russian army or spreading uh, fake news. Those uh, administrative cases usually imply a fine or a short prison sentence of uh, you know, 10 to 15 days. But in Russia, this is very often just a step away from a criminal prosecution. So very often the authorities begin by fining a person and then as a next step, they initiate a criminal case against him or her. Um, there have been uh, 440 criminal cases initiated uh, against uh, people under the same uh, anti-war legislation. And uh, um, I believe 26 have already been sentenced. Uh, one of them, Alexei Gorinov, uh, is his municipal deputy in Moscow. Uh, he got sentenced to almost seven years in prison for saying during a meeting of the municipal council in Moscow that it was unethical to hold um, contests, children's drawing contests and dance recitals were, while kids in Ukraine were dying. For that, he was arrested and thrown in prison for almost seven years in his, uh, uh, for someone of his age and health. This is not uh, something that, I mean, his friends and family and uh, many people are very worried about his health because his health is uh, deteriorating very fast behind bars. Um, Ilya Yashin got sentenced uh, as well under the same legislation. Uh, there is um, also a uh, Crimean activist, um, Alexander Tarapov, um, there is uh, a fireman, a 61-year fireman, um, Vladimir Rumyantsev, who protested against the war, got sentenced under the same legislation. So that is, uh, I mean, 26 people for now, and that number is growing. Um, so the, uh, the authorities do not only use prison sentences against protesters but they have actually restored all means of repression that were used in the Soviet times. 
against dissenter against dissenters. Um, the regime is um, very widely using torture, punitive psychiatry, rape, and other means of extreme violence against all those who dare say something, who dare um, who dare oppose the official narrative, who even who dare just call this war a war. Uh, and those cases are absolutely um, terrifying and mind-boggling, as um, uh, the case of um, uh, Maripana Marianka, a journalist who was uh, recently sentenced, um, I believe for seven years. I hope I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, uh, for seven years. Uh, for making a post online on Telegram, I believe, about the bombings of the theater in Mariupol. After spending several months in pretrial detention, she was sent to a so-called uh, evaluation to a psychiatric hospital where she was injected with unknown psychotropic um, um, substances. And uh, when she was able to speak to her lawyer after that, she said that she could not remember three whole days of her stay at that so-called hospital. Um, after that, she was uh, brought back to the pretrial detention center and was recently sentenced and uh, will now be transferred to a prison colony. Um, the, another uh, absolutely terrifying case is that of a young poet, Artem Kamardin, who was uh, arrested at his place of residence for reading anti-war poetry at an anti-mobilization meeting in Moscow. Um, during arrest, he was raped by a policeman with a dumbbell while his um, girlfriend was being tortured in the next room. Uh, the police were putting super glue on her face and tearing her hair out. Um, Artem was then denied medical care after that rape and was sent to a, um, to a pretrial detention center. He's now awaiting trial. Uh, he's facing up to 10 years for, as the official police report said, inciting hatred with the use of violence. So he is the one being accused of using violence. And he's now facing up to 10 years for that. So the... Uh, um, the scope of repression in Russia is terrible. Uh, it has affected the entire country. Arrests have now been um, uh, reported uh, according to human rights organizations like Ovidenfo and uh, Memorial uh, from all over the country. Um, in over 300 cities, uh, people have been illegally detained. Um, so this is what's happening in a nutshell. Well, thank you for sharing those stories. They're, they're all so hard to hear. Each of them is so hard to hear, but so important too. And, and, um, you know, for, for our audience, especially in the United States to, to, to understand, um, the scope, the scale, um, the brutality of what's what's going on in Vladimir Putin's Russia and and to hear those stories from from a journalist to a fireman to a poet to a young girl in in her schoolroom uh to be the victims of of that that repression 
um, really, really does help help paint us a, a, a picture and, and also to build those connections between dissent in today's Russia um, and what's going on, what Russia's, uh, the Russian regime is doing in Ukraine to hear the stories of everyday Russians uh, standing up and speaking out against that war. Um, I appreciate you, you sharing all of that. I'd like to just sort of, as we as we wind down here, hear a little bit about your own story as well. So, um, prior to Vladimir's imprisonment, you you probably wouldn't have considered yourself an activist or a dissident. Um, what what's it been like for you now, traveling traveling the world on his behalf and doing some of that advocacy work? Um, what's it been like for you? Um, you know. Was there sort of a new perspective that that you gained in doing doing that work? Um, I imagine it's not something that you ever probably considered yourself doing. That was always Vladimir's work. But but tell us a little bit about about your own experience in that regard. Um, well, this has definitely never been my ambition to become a public speaker, a public activist. I have been working with Vladimir and uh, with uh, different NGOs for years. Um, but I have never wanted to be out in the light, you know, in the spotlight. But uh, seeing what's happening, um, you know, I, I am a Russian citizen. I am the wife of a political prisoner and I'm a mother. And I have been absolutely devastated and broken on so many levels by what's going in Ukraine, what's going on in Ukraine, by the fact that this regime, this government has turned my country into a country aggressor. Yet again, we should say, it was not, it is not the first time that Vladimir Putin did something like that. And I believe that what we're witnessing today, this uh, atrocious war of aggression against Ukraine is uh, only the result of over two decades of impunity that he has enjoyed while committing, while committing other crimes against um, uh, both his own people and uh, our closest neighbors. I mean, uh, the invasion of Georgia happened in 2008. The annexation of Crimea took place in 2014. Uh, the bombings of Syria uh, it, during the bombings of Syria, we uh, witnessed uh, terrible war crimes being committed against civilian population, as we did during the war in Chechnya. So all of these crimes have been committed for over two decades. And what we're witnessing today is only the result of that impunity that he has enjoyed, because never, ever before has he faced serious repercussions of what uh, serious repercussions uh, to his actions. Um, so now that my husband, a brilliant speaker, a Russian politician, a true patriot, is behind bars, being accused of high treason, being accused of uh, uh, spreading false information about the war in Ukraine, uh, being accused of working with undesirable organizations and in Russia, anything that has to do with human rights is nowadays considered undesirable. I have to step up. Every single person has to step up and fight because I believe that every voice counts. And I believe it is my um, goal now to make sure that these voices, those thousands of voices that have been speaking out against the war in Russia, that and whom the regime wants to silence 
I just want to make sure that the voices are heard. These voices deserve to be heard because they are also Russians. And they are showing to the world that not the entire Russian people supports the war and supports Vladimir Putin's policies. And many of them are prepared to go to great personal risks to say no to this regime and to say no to this war. And I believe it is only my duty as a Russian citizen, as the wife of political prisoner, as a mother, to stand up and fight alongside all of those who are brave enough to say something, to do something. I don't really see that I have a choice here. It is uh, something that I owe to my kids. This is something that I owe to my husband and to myself as a citizen of that country. You know, I've, um, uh, I've, I've told you so um, a, a few absolutely terrifying stories about um, uh, repressions used against protesters. Uh, you know, it's, I'm a mother of three. And my oldest uh, will soon turn 17. The father's not going to be here for his 17th birthday. Um, but over the last year, over 500 minors have been detained by the authorities in Russia for protesting against the war. And criminal prosecution has been initiated against nine of them while they were not even 18. Uh, kids, as I told you, are being sent to orphanages because their parents are considered unable to raise good Russian patriots. As a mother, I will fight for every single child, child whom the regime wants to silence and for every single family whom the regime wants to silence because this is what is happening is atrocious and it is, I, I just, uh, I cannot stop cannot stop Vladimir's fight. Vladimir's war cannot stop now that he's in prison. It has to continue. And if I have to be that voice, however weak compared to my husband, uh, I will be that voice. Well, uh, it's certainly not a weak voice. It's a, it's a strong voice on behalf of, of human rights, on behalf of what what everyday Russians are are calling for um, in opposition to this regime as well, and so thank you for for the work that you're doing that, that you're continuing to do. What what is it in your mind that um, if if we can sort of put it in the the geopolitical context, what what is it that the United States can or should be doing to support your work, Vladimir's work, the work of these these political dissidents in Russia today? Either either the government or or even everyday Americans who are who are aware of the scope uh, of the problem in Russia, what can we do to support? Well, I believe that, uh, first of all, it is very important to understand that internal repression and external aggression go hand in hand, that these are two sides of the same coin. And in order to continue warmongering, Vladimir Putin is trying to do everything he can, his regime, his government is trying to do everything it can to silence dissent within Russia. And despite all those atrocious measures thrown at them, people still continue protesting. And that means that there is a lot of people, probably millions of people in Russia who do not support this regime, but are, might be too scared to, to say it. And I understand that fear, uh, knowing what uh, measures, uh, what draconian measures are being used against those who dare protest. 
So I believe that it is important to understand that uh, in order for Russia to be at peace with itself and its close neighbors, it has to become a democracy. The only way for Russia to finally be at peace with itself and its neighbors is for it to become a democracy. In order for it to become a democracy, there have to be people willing to rebuild the country after the collapse of the regime, because sooner or later this regime will collapse. And uh, I believe that now every everything should be done to put as much pressure on the regime as possible to bring forward its collapse. But when it does collapse, and the country will be in ruins. Um, if we want to see it as a democracy, we need to make sure that those people who understand what is going on and who are fighting it both inside the country and outside of the country, because hundreds of thousands of Russians have been forced to flee persecution and leave their country. Uh, they, they will be the ones to rebuild the country and to make sure that it is a democracy. In order for them to be there to rebuild the country, the first somehow needs to survive. This is why it is so important to show support and solidarity with that part of the Russian society, Russian civil society, that continues fighting despite all odds. Yeah, it's it's inspiring stuff. Thank you so much for, for um being with us today, we like to close each of our Reaganism episodes um, by asking our guests, you know, you know, the Reaganism podcast overall is about figuring out where the Reagan movement lives today. And, and from my perspective, the stories that you've shared with us today, you know, there's no place in the world where Reaganism, the Reagan movement is more connected to what's happening in today's world than people standing up and fighting for their own freedom despite risks fighting for human rights and democracy within their own countries. Um, and so when we when we speak about that aspect of President Reagan's legacy, um, could you share with us, as we do at the end of each of our episodes, your favorite book about President Reagan or your favorite speech or quote from President Reagan, uh, one, two, or all, all three of those that, um, that you may want to share? Well, um, I did give you the quote. Um, and I believe that this quote is very fitting because it describes uh, Vladimir very well and it describes so many other freedom fighters around the world who are striving for freedom and democracy and peace. Um, there are no easy answers. There are simple answers. We all have to have the courage to do what uh, we know is morally right. Um, and for this speech, well, I'll have to go with uh, um, with his 1987 speech at the Brandenburg Gate, of course, because that was that was so powerful in so many ways. That stand with those oppressed, and that stand for freedom, and that push for democracy and for peace. Um, this is you asked what the what the U.S. government can do. It is those principled and strong leaders who are not afraid to tell the truth, or not afraid to speak to dictators, to speak to dictatorial regimes without fear, and to say what they know is morally right, and to do what they know is morally right. This is what changes the world, and. Um, that speech 
also speaks to my heart because that was the beginning of the end of yet another dictatorial regime, the Soviet one. And um, we know that um, he pronounced that address, he made that address um, in, 19, in 1987, uh, and uh, the war, the wall began being dismantled only two years after that. And in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. So this is a very hopeful speech to me. And I want to see something similar very soon. Genia, thank you so much for joining us today on the Reaganism podcast. And thanks everyone for listening as well. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.